This is Footnote Forum, a production of the Law Review at City University of New York School of Law. I'm Rena Novotnik, your editor and host, and I'm joined by my staffers. Damachula. Rachel Goldman. Ted Weiss. Maya Kwasi. Ariel Federo. Shazab Bushidalal. And Andrew Miller. This year on the podcast, we will be focusing on the Freedom of Information Act and the Freedom of Information Law, or FOIA and FOIA. Right now, you're listening to part one of two of the first episode with our special guest. I'm Douglas Cox, I'm a law library professor here at CUNY Law. Professor Cox's research focuses on the intersection between national security and information policy, and we've invited him on the show to answer some of our most pressing questions about the nature of FOIL and FOIA, starting with the most basic. What is FOIA, and what is FOIL? So FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act, and uh, on the New York side, they call it the Freedom of Information Law. And generally, it's talked about as FOIA, Freedom of Information, and then some places call it an act, some states call it a law. And so sort of those are used somewhat interchangeably, depending on the circumstance. As you know, we're a public interest-driven school, so one of the things we're thinking about, how can it be used for advocacy, and, and should it be used for advocacy? FOIA and FOIA are great tools for advocacy at a policy level. One of the best examples of this is the way that the ACLU uses FOIA, where they will submit a FOIA request about an issue where they believe there should be more transparency, and they will use the submission of that FOIA request as a vehicle for sort of bringing it up. They'll issue a press release. Um, their FOIA requests are not bare bones. They are lengthy, and they sort of go through the background of the issue and why it's important, whether the issue is torture or drone killings or privacy. And they'll sort of walk through why they need this information and why the public record is insufficient currently. And they'll put that FOIA request out. And then if and when they get a response, that is another opportunity for them to put out a press release and sort of go through the material that is there. They then frequently are filing a lawsuit, which then provides another opportunity to bring this issue up again, and there's likely to be a news article about it. Uh, And then as that uh, litigation proceeds and as they get more records from the government agencies, each of those things is an opportunity to sort of bring the issue up again, and there's another article here, another press release here, and it really can uh, bring it to the fore. So it both has the effect of getting more information about it to sort of enhance their advocacy efforts, but also the FOIA process itself is a vehicle for for pushing, uh, pushing the issue. I think one of the things to think about with FOIA and FOIL to avoid is sort of uh, getting your expectations too high sometimes. I think uh, that time limitations, some of the uh, obstacles to ultimately getting records can sort of also create a problem in terms of how useful it will be, depending on how time-sensitive the information you need is. So how do you request a FOIL or FOIA, and what are the necessary elements of a request? Yeah, so it's pretty straightforward. So both under FOIA and FOIL, the basic idea is a person requests a record from a government agency. Um, The government agency is supposed to respond within a certain time period. On the federal side, it's 20 working days. On the New York FOIL side, it's five business days. And they are supposed to provide a copy of those agency records unless those records are subject to one of the exemptions under the law. So it is a nice thing that FOIA and FOIL at its base is pretty straightforward. And for purposes of a FOIA request, 
Um, it doesn't have to be very complicated. It essentially says you need to be clear that it's a FOIA request. This is a FOIA request or this is a request under FOIA. You need to reasonably describe the records that you want. Now under the law, you should also be clear about what, what format you want them. Um, it used to be that everything was in hard copy, but now you can request things uh, in PDF or an electronic or on a CD. And that's the primary things that you need to put in this request. You can put a perfectly valid and useful and good FOIA request could be one page long. There could be reasons why you want to extend it out. As I mentioned, the ACLU example of sort of using it as an advocacy document. Also, it's always a good idea to sort of try to be as helpful as you can on the assumption that whoever's receiving it is actually going to try to find those records. So if you have references to a specific document. Um, how did you know about that? Was it referenced in some other document? Was it referenced in a news article? Sort of identifying uh, the information that you know about what you're asking for can help them identify the relevant places to look. But that's the great thing about FOIA is it is something that is designed so that a simple request can be valid and can be acted on. Early on when you're doing a FOIA request, you wanna do your research. And some of it is tricky where obviously people that have been in government who are familiar with sort of how different offices function and what types of records are kept where can be more effective FOIA requesters because they're sort of looking at, they can be a little bit more direct about what they're asking for. I mean, so I think some of it is uh, in terms of making a FOIA request, trying to research the agencies that might contain records and think about all the different agencies that might have the specific records that you're looking at and is there are there communications between different agencies if, if this agency is communicating with another agency i would request from both agencies because sometimes one will look in the right place and one won't and you'll get right one part of the conversation from one side so it'll help you along is there anything that you should avoid when you're making a request so i i think it sort of depends on what you're doing I, I would say one thing is that I've certainly felt over time is just uh, sometimes you can overthink it. This request is too simple and let me work through this and let me try to define exactly what I mean by record or document or something along these lines. Or, and sometimes you'll try to exclude things and in doing that you can sort of turn yourself in a circle and make it more complicated than it needs to be. And sometimes down the line and sometimes the down the line is two years later or longer – uh, you realize, ooh, actually, as I phrased this, I kind of excluded something that I actually wanted to get. So what is a mistake that you've made in making one of these requests, and what would you do differently? Yeah, so definitely a mistake that I have made is the one that I described of trying to get a little too cute with uh, <laughs> how I phrased something, and to the point that then later I realized, actually, that could be read in a way that excludes some records that I want. And I did that in one situation that uh, where I did litigate it, and later on, when they came back, they were like, oh, well, this isn't covered by this. And I was like, you know, that's obviously not how I intended the request, but I essentially had to put in another request later to sort of cover over the specific thing that I wanted that I had, through my own error, excluded from the request. So, uh, yeah, don't get too cute. We were curious how accessible FOIA FOIA is. Uh, it's an expensive process. Do they offer a way to cover the cost if you can't afford it? How does this affect people who have to request their own documents, like a private citizen? Yeah, so there is a fee structure under FOIA and FOIL, uh, which is uh, something to be cognizant of. Now, on the federal FOIA side, this has been uh, ameliorated somewhat by recent amendments to the FOIA, where under a lot of circumstances, if the agency 
fails to comply with the 20 working day thing, which is almost always happens. They almost never get something before 20 working days. In a lot of circumstances, the agency won't be able to charge you fees. Um, it's also a thing that you can sometimes put in your request is some information about who you are uh, for purposes of them properly assessing what fee category. There is different categories, everything from sort of an educational requester, um, which I think law students should assert, which w you know allows that the, there wouldn't be any search fees and that you would get the first 100 pages free. Some agencies try to uh, restrict that to things that are sort of more official research from an educational institution, but I would always challenge that. There is uh, media requesters, which is another category. The category you do not want to be in is the commercial category, where they are charging search fees, they're charging for each page, and although at the same time that is also a, uh, it's important that they, they have something like that because they're the largest group of requesters are in fact sort of companies and organizations trying to get financial information. But because of some of those changes in the, the FOIA, the fees is something that um, has, has become a little bit less of a concern on the federal side. On the state side, um, depending upon the state, it can vary a lot. And there, ha there are some states that use these fees as um, ways to deter people from getting records. And it's so you'll see these, you see these on Twitter, you see these on other places where somebody has a letter from a state agency somewhere saying, oh, yes, we will make a search and find these records for you, but we need $19,000 up front because that's what we estimate is going to be the search fees and the copying fees. Some of that can be ameliorated depending on what the different categories are for that state. In New York, there can also be $0.25 cents a page. Some of that can be avoided by requesting things in electronic form, which might be cheaper if there's a lot of documents involved. Uh, but it is uh, something to keep in mind because it is something that is, that is sometimes used. But I will also say that I've been making FOIA requests for more than a decade now. I've never paid a penny. Even in situations where potentially they could have charged something, I've not gotten a bill, which is good. You know, if it does seem like it's going to be a lot of documents, I do always request, you know, could I have this on a CD, which some places will charge for the CD itself, uh, but it's a lot less than, you know, get up a thousand pages on there versus getting a thousand page by page. Also, being here, I do always request, I always put myself in the educational requester category, which has worked. There has been occasionally an agency that's questioned that, and then I go back and say, well, I am in this category, and if we end up litigating this, I think the court's going to agree with me has become much better with the, with the new changes in the federal FOIA law. There is a lot of things online that are very useful. So, uh, you know, there is the law itself in the code. And as law students, we look at the, uh, the, uh, the annotated code. Uh, 5 U.S.C. 552 is a federal FOIA. And we can look at that. There's also a lot of secondary sources. There's a DOJ FOIA guide. There's a guide from EPIC about FOIA more from a, a requester's standpoint. Um, that have a lot of material. And then there is for um, non-law students, non-lawyers, there is a lot of websites that have very useful material about submitting FOIA requests. Um, the agencies themselves, all federal agencies, um, should have a FOIA page, which should have some basic information and like where do you send your request to and what does it need to include. And sometimes they have online templates where you just put in your information and what do you want and you click the button and your request goes in. And there are also organizations that do FOIA a lot that have pages that are sort of giving basic information for 
uh, sort of a non-technical audience. So the National Security Archive, which is at George Washington University, one of the best FOIA requester agencies anywhere, or organizations anywhere. Uh, they've been, uh, they have been—they have essentially the largest collection of government documents outside the government. Um, they have a lot of material on their website about effective FOIA requests and uh, breaking it down and like this is what we've learned and the way that we've done it and here's what we would suggest. Uh, a lot of uh, news organizations representing journalists have pages on here's some suggestions and tips for FOIA requests and here's a template of what we do for this. So there's a lot that's available. Also, there is a growing group of uh, sort of crowdsourcing places for FOIA. Muckrock is one of them that people can make requests through Muckrock, but it also I find it a very useful thing for the records that they get. The requests that are made through Muckrock and then the documents that they get back are all posted online. So you can go on there and say, who has requested a FOIA request from NYPD? And what were some of those requests? And what were the actual responses they got back? Did they make a request similar to one that I've made? And did they actually get something? Or was it being denied on a certain basis? What places have been sort of more responsive? And could I sort of look at the way that that request was done and where they were asking for and sort of follow that as a guide? Um, there's another place called Government Attic, hosting FOIA uh, responses. Um, there's another place called Document Cloud, which is a lot of journalists posting sort of primary documents, a lot of them obtained via FOIA. And so as a first uh, stop, you always want to look to see whether you need to make a FOIA request. Is the records that you want already available somehow through one of these mechanisms, but also using those to educate yourself about the agencies and their structure to sort of make the most effective FOIA request that you can. Agencies have been trying to make, um, in theory, making it easier for people. There is a FOIA portal where you can go in and make a FOIA request and then it can be submitted to any of a number of agencies. I think people should be aware of that. Although, uh, in the FOIA requester community, some of those things have not been what they've been promised. And sometimes you submit something and it just like disappears into the ether. Or sometimes you haven't checked it for two weeks and then it says, oh, you're account is closed and we're kicking you off this sort of thing uh, so it's like any sort of government technology it's not what it was put out to be but there those are some tools that are available to the, in an attempt to try to make it a more user-friendly process for non-lawyers and uh, people should just submit a request and try it uh, one of the questions that I had was uh, who traditionally opposes foil FOIA requests which agencies have given most resistance? If you have any examples, that would definitely be mm. helpful. Yeah, so uh, it goes to, you send a FOIA request to, uh, there is a FOIA office at all agencies, and uh, and there's a FOIA officer in, in New York. And it's interesting because some agencies, they have a very big office. Sometimes it's just a guy or a woman. And that they're the ones that make an initial determination. They'll, they'll reach out to parts of their organization, whether they... Uh, to try to find these things. Sometimes they have a database of things that they're searching through to try to find responsive documents. And then they'll make an initial determination about, well, we didn't find anything or we found something and we can give you some of these documents, but not all of them, or I can give you this document, but I need to redact these certain portions of it. And in a lot of agencies, they have sort of people that are sort of administering that. And then they have sort of a FOIA officer is usually a lawyer that's above them that sort of, when there's hard questions and things that come up, uh, they'll deal with that. Um, and it completely runs the gamut. I mean, there are agencies that are notorious for being bad about giving you material, like the CIA is. The, they, they're, they're pros at it. You never feel like you're accidentally getting stuff from them. They're, they're going to find a way 
uh, if there's a way around it, they've thought it through. And there are other agencies that you might expect to be in that way, and some of them are not. Like uh, among the FOIA requesting community, the National Security Agency, for example, has a better reputation. Not because they necessarily are giving more information, but they are more responsive. They're very clear about certain what information they're withholding. And so there's just a, an appreciation that they're being more direct about it. And then I have seen the biggest discrepancies when you have smaller ent- entities, smaller agencies, or sm- sub-entities. So the most common entity that I have FOIA'd that will never respond to me at all, I've been in situations where it's like a, an individual military unit that might have information about something. Sometimes they'll just go into... Uh, into their inbox, and I never hear from it ever again. Uh, But then on the other side of that, the best FOIA response I have ever received was one of those situations where uh, it goes back to some of these captured documents. There was an individual unit. I sent a FOIA request to it, and the next week, all of a sudden my phone rings, and it's a guy who's there who's a civilian working there who has like three other jobs but also wears FOIA officer as one of his hats, and he did all of the things that they say a FOIA should do. He like, called me. Uh, he said, hello. He was like, I got your FOIA request. I wanted to make sure that I understood it. And he sort of walked through and what I was exactly what I was looking for. The CIA people will sue them just to get a, an estimate on when they're going to get back to you, uh, which is required. Um, he gave me a very good estimate. He said, I'm gonna, I think it's going to take me a couple of weeks to look through some of the things if I have something. Then he called back. Uh, identifying what he had found. Uh, He processed it, and everything I got from him, there were minimal redactions, and the redactions that he did put in it were exactly the types of things that you're supposed to redact. It was a perfect experience through FOIA, through a guy that is not necessarily a professional FOIA thing. That was one of the few FOIAs I didn't even appeal it, and it was that's how it should work. I I think that guy should be cloned and put in every uh, FOIA office in the government. I had been in the Army, and I had a uh, security clearance background investigation, and I was just curious about, like, what did they do for all of that? And so I submitted, it was a combination, essentially, a FOIA and a Privacy Act request, and it went off into the ether, and I didn't know if anything was ever going to come back, and then eventually, all of a sudden, a stack of paper arrived that had all of the information about where they had gone and what records they had checked and who they had talked to. And I just thought it was an interesting thing. And then I was, when I started in, uh, in law school, I was sort of interested in information and sort of the transparency issues also. And so when I started doing research, I started to do some FOIA requests. And that was related to research about records captured by the U.S. government in foreign conflicts. It's an interesting issue about foreign records and what's their status under U.S. law, and they have sort of ongoing human rights and historical significance. And so one of the issues about that is the fact that the U.S. has taken records like that, and then you never hear from them again. And so some of it was just finding out information about where are these groups of records, and that's when I started using FOIA more regularly at various different agencies to try to locate where certain things were. Did you find what you were looking for? Uh, In many cases, yes. So there were several situations where 
ultimately I would get records that would be people referencing, oh yeah, those records are stored here, or those records are stored here, and then I could follow up with additional FOIA requests to those locations. By the end, I had a giant stack of records tracking where all of these documents had gone to. Uh, and one of the benefits of this, and this is another thing about FOIA and FOIL, is you will learn that the agencies vary greatly on how responsive they are and also how broad they're interpreting your requests and how broadly they're uh, releasing things. So uh, by comparison, for example, I've made requests to the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, some of those are still outstanding after six years. Another, But then another agency that was involved in some of this early research of mine is the National Archives itself. And it would not surprise you, the National Archives, they take FOIA seriously, both in terms of being very responsive to requests, even if there's going to be delays, but also individual employees within these agencies, that can also make a difference. So sometimes the FOIA office is saying, oh, hey, so-and-so, we think that you might have worked on something like this. Do you have records? And sometimes that doesn't yield anything. Some of the uh, largest collections of records I got were when that happened within the National Archives, and then you have an archivist who's like, oh, yes, I was on this issue, and what I'm getting is not only memos, but I'm getting emails, I'm getting handwritten notes for meetings with things underlined, and so it just really allowed that to get the granular detail to sort of fill out the story about uh, these different groups of records. It's so interesting that you get an array of information, even down to handwritten notes. So just in the amount of detail that you can get from a FOIA request, just with like with that in mind, why do you think FOIA requests are so important? I think that's part of it, especially with some of that handwritten that some of that almost becomes a little bit ephemeral. I think FOIA has an important role in getting some of that stuff a little bit sooner than it would in a long historical context. So there is this sort of tension sometimes between long-term programmatic disclosure of government information through the historical process and through historical declassification, where at the end of a, you know, 20 or 30 years sometimes, documents are made available at the National Archives. But then part of the question is, what is in that box when you finally open it? And during that time, there have been things, some things are kept, some things are not kept. And I think with FOIA is, is a way to sort of, on an ad hoc basis, sort of reach in and try to grab some of that stuff while it's still there. So some of those handwritten notes may not survive the long historical declassification process or the or the the transfer to the National Archives, but we can grab it now. And so I think that's one thing where there can be these focused requests in on specific issues that are important now. And some of it is also about preserving those records before they would be discarded by the government down the line. I was also interested because you talked about how information can basically I want to say disintegrate, no longer be accessible despite you filing your FOIA request when you file it. So with that in mind, has there been an instance where you filed a FOIA request and it was harmful? Not sure that I can, the time where where it was harmful in that sense. Like I I think um, to the extent that you're requesting something, you never know what you're going to get. And I guess there could be a situation where you could get something you didn't expect or something that like, you know, undermines your, uh, your thesis if you were doing research or undermines your theory if you were working on a specific type of case. I think, I mean, one of the tricky things is when you, the first part of your question, sometimes you do get a situation where the response is, we had this record and we no longer have it. And I think that's one that where you're like, ah, oh, 
you know, you know, when was this guy? Sometimes even the FBI in particular actually is sometimes good about identifying exactly when it was discarded. And so then right. you're like, oh, well, I should have, had I requested this five years ago, this document might still be there. Are there laws that, or statutes or policies that freeze records at the point of a FOIA or FOIA request? Yes, so that's an important point. So the FOIA in and of itself is not a records preservation law. That's the federal records laws, the Federal Records Act, which governs how long agencies should keep records, and that's where they sort of make determinations along with the National Archives about these are the type of records that are important that should be kept forever. Some should be kept for 30 years, some for 20 years. Sometimes they're transitory records that might be kept for 180 days at the, at the low end. But when somebody submits a FOIA request, that is supposed to freeze records that are responsive to that request. Mm-hmm. Now, there can be situations where, well, this didn't get communicated. The search that they did to find these records didn't identify that those would have been responsive, but that is a situation. And when there are situations which have happened where a agency destroys records responsive to a FOIA request after a request has been made, that is one of the situations where courts have been willing to step in and be, you know, this is, we're almost going to presume bad faith here when you have a situation where something has been requested and then was intentionally destroyed and there can be sanctions for that and additional measures. How does that presumption play out if, say, you're working on a case for which you need the FOIA foiled info, it disappears? The court presumes bad faith. What happens then? And in the context of a specific case, that's where FOIA might intersect with the litigation and civil procedure. And so there can be the situations where um, you can have a civil litigation um, where there can be discovery that's being involved, where there can also, sometimes people will supplement discovery that's taking place in a case also with FOIA requests if the government is involved in the litigation. And in those situations where the government or a litigant has destroyed records relevant to ongoing litigation, then those are those are situations where one of the sanctions can be a an adverse inference. Later, there can be a thing where the judge will basically instruct the jury to say the agency had these records, they intentionally destroyed them, they should have preserved them, and therefore the jury should presume that that contained incriminating information um, that would be positive or uh, support the the charge of the uh, made by the plaintiff. You were talking about instances where agencies have destroyed records in order to avoid having them FOIA'd or in response to a FOIA request. Can you think of a, a case in which that, that was egregious? Yeah, so the, the most egregious case of that is the uh, ACLU's case against DOD and CIA and others about torture materials. And this is sort of a great illustration of in, an, in the extreme of the difference between you file a FOIA request and you file a lawsuit. So they filed a FOIA request to all these agencies saying, we want all of your records having to do with the mistreatment of detainees. And the DOD responded with 15 documents and said, that's all we have. Um, so they filed a suit, uh, went to the Southern District of New York before Judge Hellerstein. Uh, it's one of perhaps the most successful FOIA lawsuits ever. Um, it produced mountains of records about the U.S.'s torture program that the ACLU has now up on the web page, and you can sort of go through all this, and it's really filled out that history and has been sort of indispensable to sort of our understanding of that program, that part of our history. But in the context of that case, they requested records from the CIA, and among those would have been the 
torture tapes, the videotapes of the torture of detainees in U.S. custody. There was even an order from the judge saying uh, you need to look at anything the CIA's Office of Inspector General has had access to, um, and they had access to those videotapes and reviewed them, and then CIA destroyed them during the pendency of that case. Uh, When that became publicly known, the ACLU filed a motion for contempt, and as a result of that, the judge required a, a ton of additional remedial measures to sort of fill in the gaps of time to figure out what happened, why they were destroyed, but also filling in as much information. And then they got more records than they would have got under the normal FOIA to try to essentially replicate some of the information that would have been in those tapes. And then the judge stopped just short of holding them in contempt on the basis that we as a public had gotten more information about it as a result in order to remediate that problem. But it was an extreme case, and the judge was apoplectic about that. There was this great hearing after that. I sat in the, I sat in the, 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 the seats in the back watching Judge Hallerstein you know, rain down fire on uh, the DOJ and the CIA's lawyer about what happened here. You talked about records sometimes being destroyed as one of the barriers that you face in filing a FOIA request. What other barriers have you faced in trying to solicit records and also trying to get information from a particular person? Yeah, it, it kind of one of the worst problems is the ad hoc nature of it and how disjointed things can be within a government. So sometimes there's tricky questions about like which agency should I be FOIAing because I'm not exactly sure who would have these records, in which case you often end up sort of requesting it from various different places. And then from each of those places, sometimes there will be entities and agencies or sub-entities that will sort of give you the back of the hand being like, well, we don't have any of these records. Uh, You should FOIA this from somebody else. And then you have these internal things where sometimes they'll find some records, but then they'll only have portions of them. And then they'll say some of these might be somewhere else. And so there is this, there is the initial delay of waiting for records to begin with, but then sometimes you'll wait for a long time, sometimes years, if you're not going to file litigation. And then at the end of the day, when they finally get around to looking for your records, uh, they come back and are like, oh, well, we couldn't find anything. Or um, we think those are probably somewhere else, but we don't seem to have them, where you get the sense that you know not a lot of effort was put into that. And so then you're always driving blind in these situations as well because there's the asymmetry of information. They have all of the information. Also, when they're giving you something and saying this is redacted or we're withholding this on a certain basis, you basically have only their uh, assertion that this is classified or that there is something in here that is attorney-client privileged or there is something in here that's personal information that we can't release. And you're sort of left with, I, I'm not exa- I don't know anything about the document in order to sort of counteract that argument. So it can be very frustrating that way. But the, I think the main obstacle, the main frustration is the passage of time, that you have to sort of play a long game of like, I may not get these records for some time, and what I end up getting could be very limited. I'm also interested in hearing your take on like how to streamline that process, uh, not even just in the sense of speeding it up, because agencies will take as long as they want to take, but... Streamlining in the sense of you, you know, file a request for one agency, but they say to go to this agency or that agency, it could very easily have you bouncing around. Do you have any suggestions to avoid that from happening? Yeah, I think it's it's tricky because I think on the one hand, I I, I would put it as a strategy because of of 
going to multiple agencies. It can create uh, frustrations and it can create an obstacle because they'll sometimes pass it around. But I would also say that as a positive strategy that sometimes you have good things that happen when multiple agencies are looking at it. And you always sometimes assume that they are working together and coordinating, but they're sometimes not and sometimes to the benefit of the requester. So I've also had good situations where one agency is like, oh, these don't exist or we don't have these. And then another agency has them and has the back and forth with the other agency that said they didn't have anything, which then allows you to sort of go back and submit another FOIA request. And sometimes the bouncing around can sort of unearth additional records that uh, can be useful. And again, it sort of is so dependent on the agency. So when there are referrals coming from the agencies themselves, those often also get a little bit more respect, I think. So in one of the requests that I made, it was to the National Archives and in situations where the National Archives was identifying records that another agency had equities in and things, they would directly go out to them and say, hey, there's these records. I might want to look at these before they're released, but they were following up on that and making sure that I was going to get the full run of records that I was entitled to. And streamlining, I mean, the other part of it is from the beginning, I guess, is to the extent that I have very specific things that you're looking for, you know, making those requests more narrow, because it's all, it's the easiest thing is to sort of make a very broad request. But if what you're looking for is really something more specific and more narrow, that can help a little bit. And doing that research to find, you know, if you can identify, oh, it seems like it's this office that's handling that, that can help streamline that process in terms of giving information that might be useful to them to locate the relevant record. The basic structure is you make your request, you get a substantive response, and then if they come back with a substantive response and say, we don't have records, or we do have records, but we can't give them to you because they fall under one of the exemptions, you then have an appeal right. You always want to appeal. This is the thing that all the FOIA requesters say, always appeal, because uh, one, it keeps it going. Two, it will mean that it goes to a different set of eyes. So even in a situation where there's you know, here we have five documents that are responsive to your request, but we think they are fully exempt. You appeal, and again, flying blind in a sense, writing those appeals is always tricky because you'll have the the grounds, those sort of, well, this uh, contains attorney-client privilege or this contains classified information, and you don't know enough information about it, but you can make some general arguments. You can identify and you can say, I think you're reading these too broadly, and you're basically forcing them to take a second look. And occasionally, the second reviewer at the appeal level will look at it and say, well, you know, I think we could actually release a little bit of this. Maybe there's some reasonably segregable information, which is the standard in this document that we might need to redact the top of it, but I think we could release the bottom of it. So you always want to appeal. Then uh, you do definitely have recourse, which is one of the great benefits of FOIA to the courts. So you instantly have a standing to file a FOIA lawsuit, and that can happen in a couple different places. So Traditionally, the idea is you submit your request, you get a substantive response, you appeal, you get the response to your appeal, and then you've exhausted your administrative remedies, and you can file a lawsuit. But there's also a quicker way to do that if you're prepared to litigate, which is once they have the 20 working days has expired and they have not given you a substantive response. Because normally what happens in the 20, if you're getting anything within 20 working days, it's simply a, an acknowledgement letter that we've received your request and it will, you're, it will put you in line. Once you hit that 20 working days, you can file suit uh, immediately on the basis that you've constructively exhausted your administrative remedies and you can get into court right away. If you wait and you get the appeal, then you do have to file an administrative appeal. 
if you haven't yet filed suit, but then the limit on that is another 20 working days. So if you appealed and then 20 working days, they haven't adjudicated your appeal, that's another opportunity that you get into court. And the other advantage about the availability of litigation in FOIA is yes, you have instant standing and also you have some ability to sort of pick your forum. You can file suit on any FOIA cases in the District of Columbia. Uh, District, for District of Columbia, you can also alternatively file a FOIA lawsuit in your place of residence, the whatever district you're living in or even the principal place of business. Um, so you can sort of, it's, a, it's another way that you have a little bit of flexibility. When it goes to the courts, do you think people end up getting more back somehow than they might if the agency just gave them on their own discussion? Yeah, so it's definitely the case. So in theory, in theory, uh, filing a lawsuit is not supposed to change your place in line, and it's not supposed to change how much they're willing to give. But as a practical matter, it is unquestionable that it does. And when you file that lawsuit, really the effect of having a judge who is responsible for that case and is checking in on progress means that things happen. So, and that is almost the most effective part of the whole case. So I filed a case a couple of years ago. After I filed my complaint, they filed their answer. The judge said, let's have a conference. We got together and everybody introduced themselves. And then the judge basically leaned in and was like, so when are you getting Professor Cox's documents? And like that in and of itself, yeah. like, okay, well, yes, Your Honor, we're working on it and we'll, and he's like, okay, well, in 90 days, I expect there to be some substantial progress. Well, there you and go. then uh, over time, they're releasing things. Also, sometimes um, there'll be situations where they will release some documents and then you file suit and then down the line, just so happens, oh, we looked at this again and yeah, there's some additional documents. Because they want to, they really, at, when they're forced to do it in, in court, they have to get to the point where they're going to be ready to file their declarations in the context of a summary judgment motion that is saying, yes, we have done a fully reasonable search. We have released all non-exempt information in all of these records. And so as they're going through that process, they're having to make determinations about what are we really willing to attest to in court uh, if we're going to get challenged on it, what are we ready to defend? I know we're talking um, a lot about a few different barriers that one can face when filing a FOIA request. So could you talk a little bit about who's covered, who's exempt from a FOIA FOIA request? Yeah, so that's an important uh, distinction. So um, under FOIA, the federal FOIA, um, it's agency documents, and, and generally under FOIL as well, agency documents, so it's applying to um, executive agencies. Um, it doesn't apply to the president. It doesn't apply to Congress. It doesn't apply to the judiciary. It's just agencies. Now, there are these tricky things on the edges of it, which is sort of certain things within the executive office of the president act more like an agency, and some of those can be subject to um, FOIA, and some of them are not. On New York side, New York FOIL, there is also a provision that allows some access to legislative records. So it's in that way a little bit broader, but the main body are agencies. And so um, there can be situations where, you know, if somebody was trying to request from uh, an entity that is not subject to FOIA, they could then just get a response saying, we're not subject to FOIA, we have no obligations here. Um, the other thing that sometimes comes up in terms of exempt agencies is situations where um, records from one an entity not subject to FOIA is in the possession of an agency that is subject to FOIA. And there you can end up with some tricky situations where is this copy 
still a congressional record or is this an agency record that just happens to contain congressional information in it? So there's going to be some very tricky issues in that area. The other part of the exemptions, though, in terms of even when you're talking about agencies are then the nine exemptions of types of information, which is also tricky depending on the type of things that you're trying to get. So yeah, if you're working in something that involves national security, then you run into B1 exemption for classified information a lot. If you're FOIA law enforcement agencies, then you run into B7, which is for certain types of law enforcement information. If you're interested in sort of legal aspects of things, then sometimes you'll end up with communications having to do with lawyers and the federal agencies like private parties can assert attorney-client privilege for certain information as well. And with those, it's that's really where the rubber hits the road in terms of the litigation back and forth is these determinations about should these exemptions really apply in this situation or shouldn't they? And the one other benefit of the litigation availability and how FOIA allows that is that the review by judges of these determinations is de novo. So there isn't this deference. So the judge isn't saying, well, because this employee there said that looked at this and said this probably applies and we're going to defer to that, the judge can look at the records themselves and say, I don't see why this exemption would apply to this set of documents here. Now, getting them to actually review the documents can be tricky. Um, sometimes they, and especially with certain types of things, they do give a different type of deference. So like in relation, in particular, classified information, judges feel often outside their area of expertise when they have a sworn declaration from an agency saying that the release of this specific information would cause grave uh, damage to national security. Judges are usually not willing to necessarily second guess that type of judgment. How do you feel about that? The fact that there are certain people and classes of information that you are, that are just exempt from FOIA requests given the purpose of their request? Generally, as it appears in the law, they seem reasonable to me. And I think obviously there needs to be some, some of those exceptions and exemptions there. But for me, it's always the trick of how it's actually being applied. And when there is, you know, and again, as a litigant, it's also difficult to sort of counteract those. So like still, you get a more detailed declaration from an agency and it's saying, well, this contains this type of information and therefore it would cause all these sorts of problems and therefore this exemption applies. And it's hard to sort of... Um, Second guess that we're not having the benefit of seeing the records themselves and exactly what they're talking about, because sometimes they're sort of vague about what the information is. But I do think that it's it's important that we have those exemptions. And in part, I think it's important those exemptions exist because that should then encourage agencies to not be chilled by the fact that documents might be produced. Because what their job is on the federal records side is to document the actions of our government, and they should do that without a fear that, oh, well, we can't allow this to get out, because the idea behind FOIA and FOIA is that this process is created so that those things will look through, and if there is personal information that would really invade a, an individual employee's privacy, for example, as one of the exemptions, uh, that that will be looked at in the context of the larger record, and uh, information will be redacted if it was released publicly. Privileges are covered under B-5 in uh, under FOIA, and it covers a wide variety of them, including things of so the deliberative privilege, that's the internal or between agency deliberations, 
There are there's the attorney-client privilege. There is occasionally that sort of gets into executive privilege type things is the presidential communications privilege that can sometimes be used for uh, to redact or withhold. And so that that becomes a particularly difficult thing to combat uh, when those sorts of assertions are being made. Uh, they tend to be a little bit vague. Um, they also tend to be something that the, the courts will sometimes sort of uphold. And you know, so there's a question about whether did they really dig into that and take a close look at whether those apply. It's also an important thing about the distinction between FOIA and discovery in the context of civil litigation. So sometimes people will use FOIA as a, an additional thing in the context of litigation. And but there are some distinctions between discovery in the civil litigation context and the standards under FOIA. So sometimes, on the one hand, for example, you can FOIA anything. You don't have to give a reason for it. You don't, it doesn't have to be relevant. Um, so you could make a FOIA that's a little bit broader than what you might be able to get in civil discovery. But at the same time, when it comes to things like privileges, in, in discovery, sometimes privileges can be overcome with a special showing, like they're asserting that this is privileged in some way, but there is additional argument here why that privilege should be overcome and that we still should have access to this document, whereas you don't have that under FOIA. So if it it is subject to this, the, the question is, is it or is it not subject to this privilege? There's not a balancing of it. There is a balancing in the context of privacy under FOIA, but not under the privileges. I've worked in offices sometimes. You finish something, you recycle it, you delete your email, that kind of thing. How is it different if you work for the government? It's a, it's a good question because there is a structural difference. And this is a, I think this is particularly important for lawyers and law students is this distinction between private and public where on the private side and, and people that sort of work at law firms and working with private companies, there is this, the presumption is you don't have to keep anything. You don't need to create records. Right. You don't need to keep them. And there is always this sort of thing where they talk about, well, let's talk about records retention policy, which is sort of this wink and nod to, let's destroy things that we don't need because we don't want these coming up in litigation. Right. Now, on the government side, it, the default rule is the complete opposite. And sometimes when you have this situation of attorneys who are working in the private sector and then they're going into government and going back in this sort of revolving door, I think sometimes this gets a little bit confused. So. On the federal side, no federal records can be destroyed absent authority or approval from the archivist of the United States. And so how that's done is through these retention schedules that sort of define these groups of records and how long they're supposed to be kept. But the basic rule is I'm not supposed to be discarding anything unless it has been approved. There is this concept called a non-record which is like this antimatter, which is <laughs> the, the basic idea is that there could be something that is so ephemeral that um, it shouldn't even be considered a record. But the problem is that that has been used in an abusive way to say, here's something very substantive, but I don't really, I think this should be, this isn't really a record. Does that apply to emails? Yes, that would be argued about because they're early on the government mm -hmm. was saying Oh, this electronic stuff, those aren't records. And there's this great case, Armstrong, where this issue came up at the end of the, was the Reagan administration. There was, there was a bunch of records that were sort of this early form of electronic email. And the government said, well, these, these aren't records. We need to we can get rid of these because there's also hard copies of some of this. Because people printed them out. Yeah. And then, but then the judge got into this and so it was like, well, actually, this, you have the hard copy, 
but it has things like it went to this group and it's only an electronic version that it explains who all those people in that group are. So there's this great quote in there saying, these are not identical twins. They are at most kissing cousins. And these are two different <laughs> records that both right. of them have to be preserved. You've been listening to part one of two of the first episode of Footnote Forum. I'm Rena Novotnik, editor, host, and theme music composer. Thanks to staffers Dan Majula, Rachel Goldman, Cesar Ruiz, Maya Kawasi, Ariel Federo, Shaza Bushita-Lal, and Andrew Miller. Thanks also to our editor-in-chief, Audrey Juarez, and the rest of the managing editorial board. Special thanks to Professor Cox for sharing his expertise with us. Catch us next time for the second half, where we will discuss the history behind FOIA and the interaction between politics and open government. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from a famous Supreme Court decision. This from New York Times Company versus United States, a 1971 case regarding the publication of the infamous Pentagon Papers, classified documents which, among other things, revealed that the Johnson administration had lied to Congress and the public about the scope of the Vietnam War. Justice Black wrote in his concurrence, the word security is a broad, vague generality whose contours should not be invoked to abrogate the fundamental law embodied in the First Amendment. The guarding of military and diplomatic secrets at the expense of informed representative government provides no real security for our republic.